0: Get the facts and recognize the signs and symptoms of atrial fibrillation in this episode of Critical Conversations on Atrial Fibrillation, a masterclass series where doctors Sean Picorni and Emily P. Zeitler discuss risk factors for atrial fibrillation and the rationale for screening to reduce the number of patients with undetected and undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. Hello, this is Sean Picorni from Duke University, and joining me today is Emily Zeitler from Dartmouth Health in Lebanon, New Hampshire.
1: Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. And welcome to our viewers to the Critical Conversations on Atrial Fibrillation, a masterclass series. Together, we're going to discuss ways to improve atrial fibrillation detection and the role of anticoagulation for stroke prevention. You can listen to the episodes in this masterclass series one at a time or all at once, whichever you prefer. But don't forget to claim the credit for the work that you have done. Our goals over the course of this series are to develop a greater appreciation for the impact and burden of undiagnosed atrial fibrillation at the level of both the patient as well as the society on the whole. We wanna consider integrating consumer wearables into our atrial fibrillation screening programs and into our clinical practice. And we also wanna talk through how to best use evidence and best practices to individualize anticoagulation treatments for our patients with atrial fibrillation. So, let's get started and and the first topic that we'll talk about is looking for trouble, the role of systematic screening for atrial fibrillation. In this episode, we're going to discuss the rationale for atrial fibrillation screening in high-risk individuals and share strategies to implement screening programs with a goal of reducing the number of people with undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. Emily. Can you fill us in a little bit on the scope of the problem and what we're really dealing with here?
1: Absolutely, I'd love to. Um, atrial fibrillation is incredibly common arrhythmia. It's the most common arrhythmia across the world, in fact, and it amounts to about three to six million Americans with atrial fibrillation, uh, which uh, the CDC expects to more than double uh, by 2030. The signs and symptoms of atrial fibrillation are highly variable. There are a lot of patients who have absolutely no symptoms or really mild or vague symptoms from atrial fibrillation. And other patients have really dramatic symptoms that can range from palpitations to chronic fatigue and malaise, um, all the way up to syncope or even chest discomfort. Um, So it's it's a really wide range of symptoms and there is no Um, specific or normal way to experience atrial fibrillation. There are a lot of risk factors for atrial fibrillation, and that includes typical cardiovascular comorbidities. Um, But the most powerful risk factor for atrial fibrillation is age. And this, of course, is a non-modifiable risk factor. Um, So the older you get, the greater the risk of developing atrial fibrillation, such that by the time somebody turns 95, they have almost a uh, 40% chance of, developing, of having developed atrial fibrillation. Now on an age basis, um, so in an age-matched way, men have a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation, but the prevalence of atrial fibrillation between the sexes is pretty equal because women tend to live longer, and as they get older, their incidence increases uh, quite a bit. Um, and so overall, the prevalence is quite similar between men and women. And as I mentioned before, uh, the risk factors for atrial fibrillation aside from stroke and sex, which are two, uh, non-modifiable risk factors. There are a number of other risk factors for atrial fibrillation. Um, some of the more important ones include obstructive sleep apnea, uh, use of alcohol, obesity, diabetes, and heart failure. Um, and, and the list of risk factors keeps growing. So why does it matter? Well, Perhaps it goes without saying, but it's, it is worth saying that AFib matters because of the potential consequences. In addition to the dramatic impact on quality of life, there is a, a really important uh, associated risk from stroke related to atrial fibrillation. Women have a higher risk of stroke related to atrial fibrillation than men, but, but both groups have a really dramatic, nearly five-fold increase um, in, in stroke risk with AFib compared with the absence of atrial fibrillation in an age-matched way. Um, and we're going to talk more about this in later episodes, but it's, it's worth mentioning now. So we keep in mind, as we talk about atrial fibrillation, we really need to remember why it matters. It's, um, in addition to a lot of other things, stroke risk plays an important role. Um, and this, you know, as an aside, this may have a lot to do with why we see increased risk of dementia with atrial fibrillation in part, it's not the whole story, but in part, it may be repeated small strokes or small episodes of hemorrhagic or even um, embolic phenomena in the brain.
0: Yeah, that's great, Emily. I I think that highlighting the stroke issues is really critical because we know that, that patients with atrial fibrillation that have strokes tend to have very large debilitating strokes. In fact, About one in four patients that have an AFib-related stroke die within 30 days from that atrial fibrillation-related stroke. And we know that about one in three ischemic strokes are actually related to atrial fibrillation with more than 80% of cardioembolic strokes being related to atrial fibrillation. And atrial fibrillation likely plays a critical role in cryptogenic strokes or embolic strokes of undetermined source where we believe that it might be as much as a third of patients with embolic strokes of undetermined source actually have underlying atrial fibrillation. And so since atrial fibrillation is so common, especially in older adults and can have such serious consequences, what should we do about screening for that, Emily?
1: I'll just pause and take a step back to make sure we're all on the same page about when we say AF screening, what are we actually talking about? Because there's a lot of different ways to screen for atrial fibrillation. There's systematic screening, so every person in a certain group um, gets uh, gets screened with some sort of tool like an ECG or, um, or a monitor. There's opportunistic screening, which means... Um, that it's uh, for an example of opportunistic screening might be at a health fair where uh, people engage in screening um, because they've arrived at a certain event or in a certain place. Screening symptomatic individuals, this is something that uh, most of us are more familiar with. A patient who reports palpitations or lightheadedness, um, that, that person might be more likely to have an underlying arrhythmia and so that person um, might get, uh, might wear a smartwatch, for example, and be alerted that there's an arrhythmia and that person might undergo more targeted screening because of their symptoms. And then, you know, there's a a strategy of no screening at all. So this, uh, really just relies on Um, finding AFib when it presents itself due to complications like stroke. Um, We can probably all agree this may not be ideal, especially for high-risk patients. There are potential harms from screening. You know, there's a lot of anxiety associated for some patients with wearing a monitor or for having a monitor implanted, for example. And some of our more ubiquitous screening techniques involve the placement of um, adherent patches to the skin. Um, And this can cause really significant and uncomfortable um, skin eruptions. And then, you know, if you look for things, you're gonna find things. And so if you're looking for atrial fibrillation, you might find other unexpected things that require follow-up, more testing, uh, more investment of resources, And, and this can cause true harm to patients and to the system in general. Now, of course, the benefits are that you might uncover atrial fibrillation or other arrhythmias where they exist and can act in a way to prevent consequences like stroke.
0: So there's a lot of different methods that we can use for for screening atrial fibrillation and and the sensitivity and specificity of those different measures vary. And essentially, the longer that we monitor patients for, the more sensitive those tests are. And so in in terms of we can do spot monitoring with things like Cardia Mobile or AliveCore, where we we take a, a single lead ECG strip for 30 seconds. People can have Apple Watches that may have, uh, or other wearables that may have longer continuous monitoring. There are certainly patients that can have, as you mentioned, some of the patch monitors or even implantable cardiac monitors where we can monitor patients for really now up to three to four and a half years with the implantable cardiac monitors. and. And so those longer monitors certainly have higher rates of specificity. We'll talk a lot more about the wearable devices and smartwatches when we get to a later episode in episode 7. So why doesn't the US Preventative Task Force recommend single-lead ECG screening for atrial fibrillation? Emily, do you have thoughts on that?
1: Well, uh, you know, What the USPSTF has said is that beyond routine care of pulse palpation, um, that there was no clear benefit to doing more than that in an asymptomatic unselected population. Um, Now, on the other hand, there doesn't appear to be any significant harms either. So I I do think this leaves it open to individual uh, physicians to make decisions about screening in their own populations you know, a a doctor who practices in in an area that is highly enriched with cardiovascular comorbidities, it might make a lot of sense in that situation to perform routine screening of patients or to have a lower threshold to perform screening in a patient who reports symptoms that may be related to atrial fibrillation. And... And this, you know, the the newer screening devices that are, that really are truly more accurate than pulse palpation really opens the door for that. So, you know, the USPSTF recommendations maybe don't take into account the the myriad of options that we have to do more unselected screening for atrial fibrillation, really, you know, unobtrusive kinds of things and, and, and sorts of screening tools that patients are asking about, like uh, the wearables that you mentioned, and we'll talk more about in a later episode.
0: So, you know, you mentioned the fact that that in patients that are at higher risk or populations that are higher risk, it may make sense to do more targeted screening. Would you mind walking us through that a little bit?
1: The Vital AF study involved 30,000 patients. And um, in this study, screening all patients who are 65 years or older at a primary care visit for AFib with a single lead handheld ECG was recognized as being not an efficient way to identify undiagnosed AFib. John, what do you think?
0: It makes sense in my mind to use the 2020 ESC guidelines that recommend opportunistic screening for atrial fibrillation by checking a pulse or getting an ECG rhythm strip in patients that are over age 65. I think that that again, doing a more comprehensive management strategy of all patients that that have any risk factors for atrial fibrillation, I think is probably more aggressive than what makes sense in the U.S. population. And I do think it is important to keep in mind that patients with higher CHADS-VASc scores, with more risk factors associated with stroke, do have higher rates of atrial fibrillation. And so I think that for the patients that are that are at the highest risk of stroke and the highest risk for atrial fibrillation, with the Highest chat's vascular, those are patients that really it may make sense to monitor a little bit more closely. I would just say that that maybe in conclusion, the prevalence of atrial fibrillation is increasing due to the increasing prevalence of a variety of risk factors of atrial fibrillation. And we know that atrial fibrillation is associated with a high incidence of stroke and other cardiovascular events. Pulse palpation is one screening method, but as you mentioned, Emily, it's insensitive and they other alternative high sensitivity, high specificity screening devices that are widely available. And I think those need to be targeted based on individual patient risk factors. We can use single lead ECG to screen everyone that's 65 years of age or older. Um, That's what the ESC guidelines recommend that may or may not be super effective, but certainly screening the highest risk patients, as you mentioned, patients when they get into their late 80s and close to 90 are certainly at at significantly high risk of atrial fibrillation should certainly be screened with pulse palpation and potentially single EDCG. So in our next episode, we'll take a look at strategies for identifying patients with increased risk of atrial fibrillation in greater detail. Thank you for listening to this episode. Don't forget to listen to the other episodes in this masterclass series and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WQZ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available online. This activity is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer Alliance.